Star Wars Legacy.html is brought to you by the fine folks at Cage Club. So for all things podcasts, movies, music, media, and more, head on over to cageclub.me or like, subscribe, and follow on all of your favorite social media and podcasting services. Legacy.html. Yes. And we're finally here to talk about the Clone Wars that everybody knows as the Clone Wars. Yes, the much more prevalent, easier to access, widely popular, the Clone Wars series helmed by Dave Filoni. Now, I loved diving into Gendi and enjoying Clone Wars Nova. It was a two and a half hour experience that I think we talked about for four and a half weeks. And it was an interesting way to take a look at someone else kind of dictating the Star Wars universe. We've talked a bit about the expanded universe and the ways that other writers have told stories that have and have not been counted at large. This was the first time that we really saw a filmed media story that had a strong sense of purpose to it. There had been the Ewok adventure films, the live action ones, there had been the droids animated series and the Ewoks animated series. This had specifically been meant to bridge the gap between episodes two and three. And now here we're going to be discussing a much larger form project whose target is the same. One of the things that lends expanded universe credibility to the Dave Filoni Star Wars Clone Wars cartoon is that it doesn't rely on linear narrative. One of the big elements of this series is that it can be told kind of out of order. And as a matter of fact, Lucasfilm released an ultimate watch order for the series. And that's going to be the watch order we use. Yeah, I'm really surprised by how much it jumps all over the place at times and at other times not at all. Like the entire fourth season is completely linear and it's the only one so far other than what's currently airing. So Kevo, you want to BTS us a little bit about TCW? It was at April 2005 Star Wars Celebration 3 that George Lucas first stated that they are working on a 3D continuation of the quote-unquote pilot series that was on the Cartoon Network, saying they probably wouldn't start the project for another year. I always find it interesting interesting that that's how he refers to the Gendi Clone Wars project as a pilot for the more extended series, even though it was ultimately like two full hours of footage. Well, two full hours of footage compared to seven seasons, I guess, yeah, it's like a short form pilot in many ways. But, you know, maybe he's even using that term pilot like the old school term pilot, where everything could change from the pilot to the first episode. Take a look at the backdoor pilot for Empty Nest that was put in Golden Girls, which at one point was about Rita Moreno and her doctor husband trying to figure out how to live with Empty Nest Syndrome. And then, two years later, they debuted the show Empty Nest about a father, doctor, who just lost his wife and his children were growing up. The term pilot used to mean, like, this idea that means vaguely this thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean the series is going to connect directly, and George Lucas seems just out there enough that he might have gone with that definition. Absolutely, and a lot changed from initial concept to actual executed idea here as well. Originally, Filoni's idea for the series revolved around a recurring cast of characters 
characters traveling aboard a spaceship similar to the Millennium Falcon, with a crew including a smuggler, his girlfriend, a Gungan, a Jedi Padawan named Ashla, and her Jedi Master. This early concept was also designed not to interfere with existing continuity and would have only had occasional appearances from characters like Obi-Wan and Anakin. It was George Lucas himself who decided he wanted the show to focus on the film characters, but also included some of Filoni's ideas, including Ashla, who eventually became Ahsoka. And she was definitely one of the most telling things that made the Gendi a bit different, not having that character to lock on to. It would just, it was a very different project without her, and I can't even imagine this other project altogether with her in many ways. It was also really cool to learn that Lucas specifically insisted on more character development and that the show shouldn't be based in one location. He wanted them to explore the expansive universe of Star Wars. The only real restraints he put on the series were making certain characters and locations off limits, like Han Solo and Chewbacca, as well as Boba Fett and Jabba the Hutt, who he eventually changed his mind on, as well as some of the film locations. It's interesting how George Lucas is like, play with whatever you want, except certain things. But it makes sense. He has a very specific vision and is willing to let other people expand it. And it makes me wonder how season seven is going to be different of Clone Wars without George Lucas's direct involvement to say, you can do this, you can't do that. There's still the Lucasfilm story group in control, so it's not like they can do whatever they want. But, you know, it's George Lucas. He always had a very specific set control of his canon. The G-level canon, or George level, was always the highest level of canon, and the Clone Wars was given a secondary, like, this is the second most important thing level of canon back when everything was still under control of George Lucas, but even this series was never officially, fully, everything in here is definitely guaranteed never gonna change. George Lucas only felt that way about his films. Which is why it's so fascinating that they chose to take the first four episodes and fuse them into a film, kind of making the Clone Wars seem a little bit more official, but not quite. There's a lot of really interesting things that go into the way this show came together, and the elements of the narrative that are so important to canon, but don't show back up in the films. I agree, especially on the idea of opening the series with a film-like story. You can definitely tell how it would break out into episodes, but that's also just true of Star Wars storytelling. A lot of Star Wars films film narrative is based on 1930s serials, which is broken down into smaller chapters. So it's not unusual that you'd be able to do that with the pilot movie that is The Clone Wars. I think it's more strange to set two episodes before the film takes place chronologically, and only two, and specifically these two. I'm not sure that they were the best introduction to the series. Well, then let's jump right into the episodes. We're going to be taking a look first up at episodes 216 and 116. That's the 16th episode of the second and first seasons, respectively. They are Cat and Mouse, written by Brian Larson and directed by Kyle Dunleavy, and Hidden Enemy, written by Drew Z. Greenberg and directed by Stuart Lee. One of the things I found the most comforting about Cat and Mouse was opening on Senator Organa and Anakin did make me feel, okay, this is the Star Wars I know. I love Senator Organa. I recognize this story. 
And it wasn't very long before they kind of shoved in Obi-Wan there, and I, I liked it a lot. I found that this was a little hard to jump into. It felt very like a specific moment in time, and it might have worked better where it goes in canon. But I actually really enjoyed this opening sequence in a lot of ways. It reminded me of the political sort of wartime of it instead of just the fantasy fun of it. I think in some ways it's a great example of what the overall Clone Wars themselves probably were. It really makes you hit the ground running in a way that reminds me of the Gendi Tartakovsky Clone Wars series. I like that we briefly see a clone soldier who's given a name and a personality because I feel like that's something we're going to end up seeing a lot here and there, little clone soldiers that are just to remind us that these clones are people. And that was really cool. But I really agree that as an opener, this feels pretty random. It almost feels like there's still room yet for episodes to come before this one still. But something I love that this did was it brought back Anakin's technological ability. This episode focused so heavily on Anakin as a pilot, on Anakin as someone who understands machines, and that really helped it not just be Space Adventure Kid, and it made it Anakin Skywalker, which is an important part and an important distinction for the Star Wars universe. Anakin isn't just anybody. Anakin is the boy who would become Vader. So keeping in mind that bigger picture of his history is very important. I also really appreciated another look at the villains of this series. Something that as we've been watching more and more, it's been harder for me to reconcile is the fact that these are two pretty innocent sides being played against each other in this war. So it's hard to get excited or really root for it at all. But being reminded that characters like Giant Spider Guy exist and the fact that this cabal that Palpatine relies on of the leaders of the Separatists kind of are gangsters themselves helped me to be able to root for our lead characters again because I've been sort of becoming disillusioned by the fact that, you know, it's just Palpatine pulling all the strings behind a lot of this. One thing that stood out to me right away was that these figures look close enough to the real people but also have such a unique character expression that kind of changes them a little bit from the movie. It gives them a heavier tone, a more severe feel, and they kind of look like action figures. Like, straight up, these look like the toys they would make of the show, so I feel like a lot of the action is probably geared toward manufacturing toys, to be honest. This is Star Wars. A lot of the animation style was inspired by the 1960s era puppets in space serials, such as Jerry Anderson's Thunderbirds, as well as being based on the original Clone Wars series, but I definitely agree with what you're saying. The word that we even learned, I think, because of Star Wars at one point is toyetic. It's specifically an animation style that is easily toyable, which, you know, George Lucas loves, and frankly, as a kid who grew up on Star Wars, I loved it too. I also think it's kind of doodleable, mm. if that makes any sense. Trying to draw Harrison Ford is fucking hard, but drawing this big square blocky Anakin face kind of makes it a little bit more accessible to people who want to be part of it and want to doodle it on everything. A copyable visage goes a really long way toward making something connect with people who would want to create. I think the thing I was most surprised by starting with this episode was seeing Anakin on a Republic ship working with Republic officers. It really struck me hard for the first time how much the visuals of all of this is the Empire. The ships are the Empire, the officers are the Empire, and I don't know if it's because I don't feel I saw enough officers in Revenge of the Sith that it didn't land quite as hard 
hard. Obviously, the clone soldiers look like stormtroopers, but they're a little bit different because they look a little like Boba Fett. So it's not exactly there, and we think of them as the clones. So it's not, that never really made it connect for me. But seeing this officer that Anakin was working with and him having those Imperial bars on his chest, I was like, oh, okay. And I feel like you made that comment during the Gendi series as well, that there's something to be said for the fact that because everything looks so much like the stuff we know to be in episodes four through six, there's a weird super connect disconnect. It's, you know, people occasionally mistake ambivalence for indifference. Indifference is not caring. Ambivalence is loving and hating it at the same time. And I think I thought I would be kind of indifferent about everything looking so the same, but I do find myself ambivalent instead. I feel like, oh, great. It's iconography. I recognize it. I can connect with it. But no, I, these are stormtroopers. So like, I still think of them as stormtroopers. The term stormtrooper means like bad Nazi guy. And so these clones looking so much like stormtroopers, there's a visual connection that's hard for me to shake. And frankly, we know what they're going to all end up doing in the end of episode three. So we know they will eventually become stormtroopers. They're just working with the Jedis right now. This first episode essentially was an action pilot to give Anakin agency and excitement. Cat and Mouse itself's plot is sort of -of run-of-the-mill space opera, but that works for it. I didn't feel that it was a necessarily compelling story, but I also didn't find myself bored. Yeah, I agree. I found the villain somewhat obnoxious though I loved his design and the clicking affectation of the spider very clever it's really cool that they're able to do things like that more easily with animation than they would be able to in live action however the next episode kept my attention beginning to end I really liked the enemy within it was exciting because I found myself immediately connecting with the clones which I'm going to work hard to call the clones and not the stormtroopers to me they're still stormtroopers so I'm going to work hard on that because this is going to be a challenge, but no, I thought this episode was terrific. It was exciting to see how hard they would work to create separate personalities in a visual that's going to be the same all the time. So I enjoyed that, and it had my it had my boo. It had uh, Stabby Sith Ventress Princess. It had the best character ever. Such a brief appearance, though. I actually didn't even make a note of it in my notes. I completely forgot she was in this episode. Not in a complainy way, because something that I really always loved growing up on the Disney afternoon was recurring villains, which I think is something you can relate to coming from comics. And I think a lot of franchises today can sometimes lose sight of recurring villains. Plus, it's hard when you are working in a live action medium to get characters to come back. So it's really cool in animated shows that they're able to have this character pop up just for like five minutes in an episode. And that's it. Before Obi-Wan encounters Ventress, there was a moment where I find Obi-Wan here kind of plays an ugly two-faced game. I feel like he's always yelling at Anakin, but he constantly finds Anakin's antics adorable and like almost stokes his violence, encourages him to sink into battle. And I don't know if it's that Obi-Wan is fun and roguish and thinks everyone should be able to be fun and roguish, but for Anakin, it's just too much. But I did find myself kind of like, all right, Obi-Wan, you're kind of like pulling the assist here. Yeah, I even made note in last episode, he says 
to Anakin. I hate to admit it, but good job. And like, why would you, why say you hate to admit it? There's so many better ways to say things like that. And I don't know, maybe it's something to do with having been trained by a hippie like Qui-Gon Jinn, who is very, you know, aggressive about the living force and, you know, kind of plays by his own rules and having had to play sidekick to someone like that and still fall into favor with the Jedi Council was probably something, was probably a balancing act that Obi-Wan had to play for a while, you know? Obi-Wan does have to manage being kind of like the sandwich figure. Qui-Gon literally became part of the Living Force and his Padawan becomes Vader. So Obi-Wan plays this weird role, sort of sandwiched between two colossal figures. He's not Yoda, but he sees everything happen with Yoda. He's not Luke, but he's the one who finds and trains Luke. He's not Leia, but he's the one that Leia contacts. Obi-Wan plays this pivotal role that must have made it very difficult for him to establish an identity as a hero. And on the subject of identities, I think this episode really helped to establish early on, even where it went in the series run, the fact that the clones themselves have different identities, personalities, personas. And I think that's a really important thing to show because it's something that I definitely, definitely feel is lost in the movies. One of the things I noted right away was that they're like, oh, that's Slick's unit. Oh, and then it turns out the traitor is ultimately Slick. The reveal there being anybody could be the traitor. Anybody could be working for the separatists. And I did get that sense of betrayal and they didn't want to accuse their own, but I could tell there was a hierarchy. This one episode gives so much depth to the clones. I can see why it is necessary before the film. I also think it's a bold choice to put an episode like this so early on, both chronologically and production-wise, having a clone rebel against the concept of being a clone soldier and the Jedi's just not give a shit about his anger and hurt. And like, it's going to be really interesting having to buckle in and watch over a 120 plus episodes of this because what he's saying is right and I'm curious to see how they are going to play that concept out further if they are introducing that notion right up here at the front. Because all of the ways they play those scenes out with everything going on with Obi-Wan separately and the clones all happening back on the base, that's even the pivotal moment. How did you know the Jedi had left? It's so, so fascinating how the Jedi only talk about the clones as reinforcements, but the clones talk about the Jedi's like they're everything. Interesting. I had not noted that. You know, starting Clone Wars was really an exciting prospect because I always sort of stayed away from it thinking, oh, it's just like a war movie kind of thing. But it turns out there's actually a lot here for me to like. I'm not just looking forward to getting more development on Obi-Wan and Anakin, but I'm looking forward to a lot of the minor characters and especially who we're going to be covering starting in the film, Ahsoka. I mostly stayed away because by the time it came out, I had already fallen out of love with the series a little bit, thanks to Revenge of the Sith, and I had been under the impression that it was going to be geared more toward little kids than it was, and by the time everyone was raving about it, there was already so much of it, and streaming wasn't really a thing yet, so I couldn't really get into it. And then finally, this project came along, and I'm really glad that we have a dedicated purpose 
purpose-driven reason to be watching the show and studying it and absorbing it, I am really interested to see other people try to develop the shortcomings of the original trilogy because the lack of empathy toward that era of the saga is something that's always vexed me. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that era through new eyes, experiencing it through new and old characters. As you said, Ahsoka is, you know, one of the defining characters of this whole series and has become so important to so many fans. So I'm looking forward to getting to know that character better. And speaking of Ahsoka, rumor and I believe confirmed word is that Rosario Dawson has been cast as the character for the upcoming Mandalorian season two. I'm going to be honest, Mandalorian is probably what made me such a big Star Wars fan at this point. I loved that series and it made me want to delve further into the canon. So knowing that this show's biggest creation, Ahsoka, is going to find herself in the canon that really drew me in is exciting. Absolutely. And that's just one tidbit that we know about the Mandalorian. Who knows what the Clone Wars is going to set up that could further be developed in the Mandalorian that could be further developed in other properties down the line. There's so many exciting things going on in the Star Wars storytelling world right now. And I'm really excited that we are a part of it. I do believe I have a number of questions about a certain dark saber. So I'm going to keep my eyes all over the TV projects for that. But Kevo, until we return to take another look at a galaxy far, far away, somewhere between episodes two and three, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kevo Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. And on the Facebook page for this program, Husband's Talking More or Less, at Real Nico Kevo Action. Nico, where can the folks at home find you? You guys can find me all over this network on shows like X's for Podcast, Mondays and Thursdays, where we cover both modern and classic X-Men comics. Don't forget to check out my Instagram at Nico Action, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And until we come back next time, we'll see ya. May the Force be with you, and also with your Force Ghost. I'm just gonna let you have it. (laughs) 